Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. And now, here's your host, CEO and co-founder of Scouts, Max Hansen. Well, welcome back to episode 91 of the Built on Purpose podcast brought to you by Scouts. I'm your host, Max Hansen, the CEO of Scouts, where we find purpose aligned and performance proven leaders. Speaking of, today I'm thrilled to have with us future of leadership expert, Mark Crawley. Mark is the author of Lead from the Heart and founder of the consulting firm, Lead from Within. He spent over 20 years in sales leadership roles before becoming a sought after speaker and advisor on heart led leadership. Mark helps leaders connect with their people on a human level to drive greater engagement. In our conversation today, Mark will share why leading with his heart is so key and provide practical tips for making this mindset shift. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Max. Thank you very much. You know, one thing I was going into this because you have such a successful podcast yourself, I'm thinking, I'm going to ask this guy like what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. I might learn (laughs) things from this guy today. Looking forward to having this conversation. Uh, And there are so many directions, you know, I could take it. Um, I'll just kind of start right down the middle and, you know, just kind of start with like, what does heart-led leadership mean to you? Well, it's, it's the last two words that are most important here, which is to me, um, or to <laughs> me, because, uh, it, the idea of leading with heart is, you know, is something that seems to be percolating lately. I wrote my book first 12 and a half years ago. And the second edition last year, and it's taking all of that time for business to fully embrace it, to even accept it, because it sounds so soft and so weak and so sentimental and so spiritual and all the fantasies that people have about it, but like an instant dismissal, like the guy's out of his mind, you don't leave from the heart, right? So right out of the gate, I'm dead on arrival with a lot of people. But what's happening now, Max, is that is there's been enough time that's gone on. I think COVID helped with this. But we have this sort of, you know, we should leave with more heart. That people are saying that. I'm saying literally. Like, so the differentiator is that I'm talking about the heart being much more than a pump. There is science that shows that the heart and the mind are actually connected and they're communicating with each other constantly. And the signals that the heart is sending to the brain, the brain is actually making decisions about how to respond to it. So we've always believed the heart was a pump, everything cognitive was up here. And we now know that intelligence is distributed through our entire bodies, including in the heart. And so if that's true, if feelings and emotions are influencing our choices and our behavior, then we need to take the eraser to the whiteboard and say everything that we believe to be true about traditional leadership theory, which is pay people as little as possible, squeeze as much out of them as possible, oppress them, you know, try to wring out as much work out of them as possible so that we, the owners, can be the beneficiary, keep people under fear, keep people, you know, a little bit unstable, you know, all of that. That's traditional leadership theory. And guess what? It, it's the opposite of what we should be doing because to get people into an optimal level of performance, the heart and the mind have to be in sync. There has to be what's called coherence. So when the heart's feeling good about what's going on and the mind's feeling what's good, good, the mind is feeling good about what's going on, there's coherence. And what coherence literally means is that 
you're putting people into an optimal level of performance. So people can actually excel for you. They're feeling good. They're feeling safe. They're feeling supported. They're valued, appreciated, all these kinds of things. People then end up marinating positive emotions. And we know that that's what people need to thrive. So when I say lead from the heart, like I paid somebody $10,000. And I hope that if you want to edit this out, that I'm going to tell you what she told me. So I wrote my first book. I came out of a corporate role, a senior management role in financial services. Nobody knew who I was. I was recommended, go pay this woman whatever she costs. She'll help you build the platform. So I wrote her a $10,000 check. And she came back and she goes, I read your book. I began writing for Fast Company Magazine. I started reading some of your articles. She goes, here's what I want to tell you. I got plan A and I got plan B. Plan A, you're going to hate. Plan B, you're going to want to do, but I hate. And I go, stop playing around. Just tell me what plan A is. She goes, you're going to fucking fail if you continue to use the expression leap from the heart. And and it was interesting because people had said, well, you know, like, did that make you angry? You know, did you really want to, like, you know, go after her? And I was like, no, what I think she was trying to tell me was the world isn't really ready for this. But I had to make a decision next, which was, do I, you know, she was like, call it killer engagement. People are into that. And uh, and I didn't. I mean, I, I own the language lead from the heart because I know the science is true. I know that this is true. And I knew it would take me amount of time. I never believed it would take 12 years for it to happen. But I did believe there was an inevitability that people would understand that what I'm talking about is truth. And so I hung in there and I stuck with it. So it's like really important to me to say leap from the heart because I mean it sincerely. I mean it seriously. I mean it scientifically. Awesome. I'm going to leave all that in. You couldn't have, you couldn't have opened up better and, and started to really get on the topic. And, you know, I, I will say, uh, and I want to get back into it, but we were the first ever purpose-based leadership search firm on the planet. And when we were explaining in 2010, 11, people looked at us like we were crazy too. They got yeah, I'm it. Sure they did. I'm they sure. were ready for it. Like people, leaders were like, I'm not ready. You mean a guy who gets numbers. It's yeah, exactly. So I, I I get it. I mean, you're you're ahead of that, and this is back in you know this is not that long ago. I felt like, and you know now everybody's like, oh yeah, it's like you know kind of a everybody kind of understands it, but uh, they don't understand it though, Max. That's the thing. It's a superficial understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need a purpose guy, but what they're really saying is, well, give me the purpose thing, but get me a guy who can get the numbers. You know, they still want to go there, and you have to kind of back them out and go. No, we're really talking about something important here. Like, like this is essential to your success. I don't think we've made that leap yet in terms of really, truly understanding why purpose matters so much and that integration and getting somebody who's really going to bring the culture along with you. Just some advice. You asked for it earlier. So. No, I, I love it. Where where have you been all my life? Like, I've been <laughs> for this long I'm trying to drag this sledge uphill, but... Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about like, so now I think that was an incredible way to open up because I think now people, you know, know it's built on purpose podcast. I mean, they know what they're getting here. So talk, this might take a little unpacking. So I apologize for kind of asking it this way, but give a little background on how you were raised and how that influenced your path professionally. Cause I think, you know, if somebody just heard what you said, they say, Oh yeah, that this guy knows what he's talking about. But I think understanding your past is going to be important. And there's a lot of other directions I could take this, obviously, but I think that's going to be really important for the audience to understand. Well, you know, as my son says, you're a grown-ass man, so I can't really wallow in 
the story, but I had a, we're, we're just going to say a rather destructive upbringing. My mom died when I was very young, and my father raised me from that point forward. And ironically, he was a very successful guy, a like really successful person. Um, senior executive leader at General Electric for many years, traveled all over the world, ran huge divisions. But he was somebody who was intentionally, psychologically, and emotionally abusing me. And so he just beat me to a pulp in terms of my self-esteem and my belief in myself. And then, uh, for reasons I don't, still don't really understand, he, he kicked me out of the house a couple of days after I graduated from high school. I was getting ready to go to college. And he kicked me out, like no, no advanced warning notice. And then on top of it, no financial support, no come home on Sundays. We still love you. He got remarried and, you know, come home for birthdays and Christmas and nothing. I mean, there was simply nothing. It was over in an instant. And so, so he crippled me in the sense of, you know, my believing in my ability to perform and excel in the world. And then pulls the rug out from under me, right? Now, how am I going to survive in the world? So I had, this is probably, you know, the universe helping me here, but I had it in my mind that if I didn't graduate from college by hook or by crook, that I would be the abject failure that he always told me I was going to be. So binary, graduate, you're not the failure, don't graduate. You have to live with his prediction because he was right all along. And the thing was that he would say, well, you could have done that on your own intellectually, but I wasn't capable of doing that at 18 years old. It was you better get the degree because otherwise he's right. Instead of saying, no, you know, I could go back and get a degree later, but even if I never got a degree, I'm still a wholesome person and, you know, all that, but I didn't have that in me. And so honestly, what happened was is that I probably should have been kicked out of college for the first couple of years. But somehow managed. I think people saw something in me. One professor actually told me that many years later. He kind of saw something in you. But then I kind of got into a rhythm. I got I was I got a job and I started making money enough to live and I'm going to school. So it was school, work, study, school, work, study, that kind of a thing. And I just got into it and ended up graduating, actually doing very, very well the last couple of years. But I'm sitting down and I'm having conversations with people. I'm graduating from what has become one of the top public schools in the country. So I got a great education. And I proved to myself that I was worthy of that. But people that I was graduating with, they're going, what are you doing now? Oh, I'm going to law school. I'm going to Harvard Medical School. I'm going. And I'm like, I'm thinking like, you know, like I survived this, but I'm not, I'm not that guy. Like I don't deserve to. So I'm still. My dad's influence is still very much present. And so I'm listening to this. I'm like, I, the thought of applying to a graduate school was like not even in my purview because I'm thinking, who's going to want me? Right. So I'm looking and I'm thinking, well, what's the difference between me and them? I did as well in college as they did. In fact, I had more hardships. So given what I overcame here, like I'm feeling pretty good about myself, but I don't feel that great about myself to apply. And I started to think about it. And it dawned on me that, like, they had love. They had, you know, parents that had them home for the holidays in a safe place. And how did you do on your English exam? And, you know, there was involvement and engagement and support. And so when I realized that, I started managing people and without really understanding it, 
like, I mean, I'm saying so unconscious that it was in, in front of me until I was 43 years old when somebody pointed it out to me that I gave people what I always wanted them to get. So I never felt safe, particularly after getting kicked out of the house. It was like, you know, you, you're one car breakdown away from failure. You know, if anything goes wrong, if you can't get to school, you, you lose your job, all that. So this is huge stress on you. And I made people feel safe. I made people feel valued. I taught them everything that I knew. I wouldn't let them go home on a Friday night not knowing how they stood. You know, so I didn't want people going home on a weekend going as much. Like, hmm, am I doing a good job? Or, or I wonder if I'm going to get fired. I didn't want people having those fantasies. So I'm like in their hearts, basically. And every team that I managed, I just kept getting promoted and promoted and promoted. And I'm still feeling deeply insecure about myself because I had to work through that through probably my 30s and my 40s. But I'm strong enough and smart enough to do a good job. And yet what was happening was my company is just promoting me over and over. And I'm just thinking, well, that's, this is the way you lead. This is what everybody does. And so I never looked under the hood, never questioned it until a woman named Cecilia who had been working for me for 20 years, very casually just said to me, you know, you manage people very, very differently, right? And I go, compared to what? She goes, to everyone. Like, like the sharks that I'm surrounded by right outside your door is basically what she's telling me. And I go, well, give me an example. And so she gave me one example and I, I almost like, it was like, like searing eyes. You know, I was like, Oh my God. Like I understand. I, I made this pivot thinking on some level next, like I wonder if I gave it to them, what would happen? Like I always believed that I was deficient in my self esteem and my belief and my full capacity. Had I been given those things. So I gave it to the people who were working for me and I'm watching them blossom and grow and produce and do all this great stuff. I keep getting promoted and now I'm realizing, holy shit, like this is a relation. Like it would not have happened if I hadn't had the mom die, the father abused me, getting kicked out of the house. It was all in response to that. And so like you and I wouldn't be here if I hadn't had that upbringing because just changed my wiring completely. And then when she told me this, I had no intention of writing a book or doing any of this work. I'm just going to continue to excel in my career and grow. But I really, truly refined them. Like I experimented now that I know what's happening here. And so before I ever wrote the book, I had pretty much perfected what I'm prescribing in terms of how we lead people. Amazing. What an amazing story. So do you prescribe to the idea that people make decisions either from love or from fear? And if so, when did do you, I mean, it sounds like for a long time, obviously you're kind of making it from fear of not succeeding from fear of, you know, people not getting the love that, you know, you didn't uh, necessarily get, but it, was there a point where you kind of crossed over and it was kind of done from love versus fear? For me or for? Yes, for you. No, um, this, it's a really great question, but I have to really understand it because first of all, if you, if you reduce all of our emotions down to two words, it is polar, right? So it's love or fear. And our orientation in work is fear. Like we, 
if you don't do this, you're going to get in trouble with the boss. Or if you don't do this, you're not going to get a bonus. Or you, you'll get passed over for promotions. We do this all the time. You know, somebody's going to be upset. The big boss is going to be real. He's going to be on our asses if we don't get, I mean, this is what we hear in business, right? And so I'm not saying that you can't be realistic. Like if we don't hit our numbers, we're going to be in trouble. There, there can be some of that, right? But that, that doesn't really move the needle. So my orientation was more on the love side. And so what we know, and this is in my book, but what I've discovered wasn't my discovery. It was my discovery through an interview that I did with a woman named Barbara Fredrickson. She's the, uh, she's a professor at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and one of the great stars in the positive psychology movement started by Martin Seligman probably 10, 12 years ago. And what she believes is that if you take all positive emotions, so attention, care, love, appreciation, joy, awe, if you take any of them, they all boil down to love. So when you're feeling joy, you're feeling love. When you're feeling appreciated, you're feeling love. And she said, we human beings are hardwired to thrive on positive emotions. And there's all kinds of studies that basically show that any relationship fails if it doesn't have at least four to one ratio of positive to negative emotions. So like husbands and wives, partners and those kinds of things. If it's, if it leans into negative emotions, relationships end up failing. John Gottman, University of Washington proved this, but there's many others that have gone on to prove the same thing. So the point is, is that if human beings, us, need positive emotions in order to thrive, then we need more love than we need fear. And fear just happens in life. It just it, it just does. You know, just particularly in our world, you know, I mean there's earthquakes and fires and all kinds of craziness happening in the world. It's unsettling for people. We had a COVID pandemic for two years. People are kind of on edge naturally. You get out of bed, you're already feeling it ill ease. So the only antidote to that is to have somebody care about you and value you and tell you it's going to be okay and to know that you have somebody who will support you. And that's where I oriented myself in terms of my leadership. Now, one thing I need to make sure that you know and your audience knows is that if you went up to 10 people who used to work for me and you said, hey, you know, you work for Mark Crowley, what might that What's a word you'd use to describe him? Like, just give me one word. But you'd think heart guy, right? He's the heart guy. That's what you're going to hear 10 times in a row. And what you would hear is demanding. He's the most demanding guy I ever worked for. So you said, well, how the hell can you possibly reconcile that? If you're the heart guy, how can you be demanding? Well, my belief was, and I actually made this conscious understanding without understanding the antecedent. I didn't know how I got there. What I knew was I was doing things for people that was accelerating their growth, making them perform at unbelievable levels. And now I have a whole team of people like this. I told them like directly, like, you're not getting this from anywhere else. Like you were getting this before, but now that you are like, you're, you're in like the prime, like you're able to perform at a level that everyone around you isn't. So let's aim higher. So if that's the case, let's, let's do something extraordinary. And at first they were like, you know, I, I, I can give you an example of this, but just simply, you know, I asked them, let's, let's climb a thousand, thousand feet higher than everybody else. And they're like, 
How about like five feet? How about we do that? I'm like, no, I'm not buying that. I'm like, I'm setting it a thousand feet higher. And what we did was we routinely proved that when, if you just set it, you know, I'm not giving a lot of context, but you get the idea. If I'm setting it a thousand feet higher than everybody else, it's a bar, higher bar, but they would get to four and five thousand. And they're like, how did that happen? Because we were aiming higher, and they knew they knew A, I was expecting it, and B, that they were capable of performing there. So we were routinely number one in the company, like month after month, year after year, and they're walking around like, you know, I'm part of this. And I'm thinking, well, we don't have lives that are last very long, and you want to have joy in your career. You want to feel like you did something worthwhile. So... We just killed it over and over and over because people felt like I have a boss that loves me and they would never use that language, Max. They would never use it, you know, but they could feel it, right? They knew it. They could feel it. And the feelings drive their behavior. So their behavior said, I'm going to support this guy and we're going to do great work. And that's what happened over and over. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. You know, we, we had the opportunity, obviously, to chat. I think it was like a month or two. And there was a note that I took and I wanted to make sure to talk about this, because I think not only for my sake, but I think everybody will enjoy that listens to the podcast, is you talked and you, you opened with this a little bit where uh, you talked about the science around the heart. But I remember when we, you and I talked, I, I think you had done some work with a couple doctors, which kind of led you to definitively you know, connecting the heart and the mind, correct? And can you talk about that? Because I remember that being kind of really fascinating. To just further, uh, you know, prove that you know this is uh, an incredible direction in the right direction. But I, I, I think it was, I thought it was a research that you had done with a couple doctors that kind of had led you to that, or you coached them or something. No, so so what happened was sitting exactly where I am one day, I had a colleague of mine that I wasn't working with anymore. Um, he was a we had worked together at a large financial institution. We were both senior vice presidents. He had left. Um, but he was keeping tabs on what I was doing and joyfully, you know, like encouraging me. How far are you gone? Have you underwrite? That kind of stuff. So we're having a conversation. One day he goes, you know, you're going to have to explain this, right? I go, what are you talking about? He goes, you're going to have to explain why this works. And I go, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you know, people are going to think you need to have a shitty childhood in order to leave this way if you don't explain why it didn't work or why it works. And, you know, I see you smile. I'm like, but it was like, when he said it to me, I was like, oh my God, like he's completely right. But I've done none of the work. I could, I just thought people would take me at my work. Like he's, he's a successful leader. You know, these are the, you do these practices. They're going to make you infinitely better. That was my belief. And he goes, they won't. You're going to have to explain it to them. So I had to think about, well, what was it that was happening? Like why, why did people scale mountains for me routinely? Male, female, older, younger, college educated, no college, didn't matter what the job was. It happened over and over and over. It was like, I take over a team and boom, it goes up. So what was it that I was doing? And I had this epiphany. Like it just hit me. I was affecting the hearts of people. And it was like instantaneous joy and then instantaneous pain. I went and told my wife at the end of the day, I have wasted almost a year of my life because there's nobody in the world 
that's going to buy into the language of leading with heart. I hadn't had the title or anything. It was just like heart and leadership. Like the people that I used to work with, I managed 2,000 stockbrokers. Like you're going to like hear this and go, what the hell happened to him? Right? Spiritual breakdown, religious nut, whatever. He's lost it since we saw him last. And my wife goes, well, didn't you already prove it? And so it was like, you know, dust yourself off and go find some evidence to prove it. So I wrote to a woman who's a world-class cardio surgeon, graduated top of her class at one of the SUNY schools, State University of New York Medical Schools. Um, she's had two uh, PBS specials in the last four years. So like, and written two books, really legitimate. Hadn't had all that, but she already had the, the, the chops. And I explained to her, this is what I think is happening. I think that I was affecting the hearts of people. And is there any science to support it? And so I went to meet her. And I walked into her office. She didn't even get out of her chair. She already knew the whole premise. And she looked up at me and she goes, Mr. Crowley, you figured out something we've just, we're just beginning to figure out in science. And I had literally tears coming down my eyes. I didn't know what she was going to tell me. All I knew was she was going to confirm my whole life's existence in an instant, which is what she did. She said, I went to medical school and we worked on cadavers. And the first thing we were working on was hearts. And every student with exceptions, few exceptions, was really squeamish about working on a cadaver's heart. And the doctor that was teaching the class said, you know, I, they, he identified it and said, look, you know, it's not alive and it never was anything more than a pump anyway. So if you, if you, you think it's like that's where their spirit is or anything, just get over that. Treat it like a carburetor. So like a car park. So she goes out into her, you know, she, she graduates from medical school and then gets her specialty. Now she's working with patients. And she's a caring person. So she'll say, Max, you know, I, I understand you've got some heart issues, but tell me about yourself. Max was an alcoholic. Max was in a bad marriage. Max had serious financial problems. There was something serious going on in his biography. And so this happened over and over and over. And she goes, heart part doesn't react like that. So if the biology is being affected by the biography, then the heart can't just be a pump. So she started getting really curious and she looked into this and found out that there's an institution in Northern California called the Institute of Heart Math. And they've been studying the intelligence of the heart now for 30 years. So when I met them, it was like 15 or something like that. Basically, what they've been able to show is that the heart, but they were wrong. Like medicine was wrong. She was trained incorrectly. They did not know this. They, and, and you can't blame them. There was no technology available to prove this. So science has always decreed, look, man, if you can't prove it, it ain't true. So spiritualists have always believed this. All the wisdom traditions have always believed that the heart, follow your heart, listen to your heart, have a change of heart learn it by heart. Why would we ever say these things if we didn't believe that there was something more to it than that, right? So subsequently, so she pretty much laid it out for me. And one of the founders of HeartMath actually mentored me in writing the chapter on the heart, which is my favorite chapter in the book because it's so mind-blowing and we still don't understand that this is true. It's like, how can this be true? But then 
I interviewed for an article that I wrote, and then I later had him on my podcast. His name is Dr. James Doty. And I actually wrote an autobiography that was a New York Times bestseller called Into the Magic Shop, if anybody wants to check this out. Or you can go on my website and look at the article. It's, I think it's something called something around uh, why a world-class brain surgeon believes the heart matters more than the brain in leadership. It's something like that. And so he's at Stanford University. He was, he's teaching brain surgery at Stanford Medical School. And he goes, the heart matters more than the mind. It's all about the heart. It's all about feelings. It's all about emotion. So, you know, if you think about this, if, if you're the Chevy dealer, are you going to tell me how great the Fords are? You're going to go Chevy beats Ford all the time. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, in this case, the heart matters more. And so I wrote an article um, relating to this, you know, summarizing what he said, and then I had him on the podcast and he said the exact same thing. So I have the science behind me. And there's much more that's come out around feelings and emotions um, that many people still believe is all here. And it's just, just simply isn't true. It's distributed through your body. Your body is picking up. There's a, another book called uh, your body, the body keeps score. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's been on the New York Times bestseller list for like two years. And the whole thing is that your body is absorbing all your life's experiences. And it's not just like loading up, like, you know, filling up your trunk with junk. It's like having an effect on you. And so the science is just emerging over and over and over to confirm what I'm saying, which is that we are not thinking organs we are feeling sensing we, we up to 90 percent of our behavior is driven by feelings and emotions and so you go up to the you know the cpa and you go did you know that a lot of the decisions that you make in business are you know aren't rational well it might be true for some people that's not true for me you know that's that's how we process it but um what what i i just read this book and what they were describing was was that it, it's 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 akin to we take a gun, we shoot the wall, and then we go and we build a target around it. That's so our, our, our feelings are making decision. And now we're looking for a way to rationalize it in order to feel comfortable about the decision. But deep down, there's, there's feelings and emotions that are driving pretty much all the decisions that we make. But the most important reason I mention this is because it's true of engagement. So if you work for me and I make you feel crappy all the time, if I make you feel unsafe, if I make you feel like you don't, maybe you won't have a job or I don't like you or I don't like something about you or about the way you approach your job or whatever, I'm making you feel unsettled. I'm immediately like, you know, putting hurdles in front of you that aren't necessary and actually hinder your ability to perform and also hinder your interest in staying working for me. It's like, I don't feel good about working for this guy. And so you'll make the cognitive decision to go do something else, but it's based on the feelings that I've created for you. Got it. Amazing. Amazing. And I, I was uncovering some of this reading your work. And I mean, this is, I love, I love the, the science and the connection of the two. Talk about why it's so important today. Like, I mean, versus, you know, 10 years ago, or maybe even a couple of years ago, maybe pre-pandemic, but why is it so important today? There's, there's, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, but I want to hear kind of your perspective just based on 
who you are and the knowledge. And, you know, um, my father worked for General Electric for 42 years. They had one employer, as far as I know, except he uh, left General Electric and went into the Navy during World War II. So he, went and, he was a commander in the Navy, and then he went back to General Electric afterwards and basically spent 42 years there. That was an era where people went to work for companies and companies kind of looked out for people, and then something changed. And what changed was companies started looking after the bottom line. Milton Friedman, 1970, came out and said the principal role of a, or purpose of a corporation is to make money for shareholders. Didn't mention the environment, didn't mention communities, certainly didn't mention employees. So companies started making decisions that were less favorable to employees, but it didn't happen overnight. But what did happen was that the next generation, and, and I would say my generation, basically said, you have to put up with whatever they give you. So if you have a crappy manager, that just comes with it. And you put up with that, and you hope that you get somebody better. But you don't quit. You don't leave. Well, the next generation, which for all intents and purposes was a blend of Gen X and, and but largely millennials. So you, you get into the Great Recession in 2007. This is a generation that now has already seen 9-11. We're talking about this on the 21st anniversary, um, 22nd. And then, the Great Recession happens, and their parents, you know, they're left at home, they go to school, and they have to come home and be by themselves because both parents are working, and they come home, and they're stressed every night, and they're giving all they can to their jobs. And then what happens in the Great Recession? Companies lay off millions of people. And so millennials saw this, and they were like, hey, man, that's like, that's not fair. Like, that's not a good deal. Like, we can't, I don't want that. You know, I, I don't want to have a career where I'm giving everything to a company and they're giving me nothing back at the end or not giving me any sense of protection. So it, it's like in response to what they saw their parents, their values changed. Now, Gen Z, and I truly, I mean, they've had nothing but a mess over the last, you know, 15 years in America with all the different in the world where all the different things that have, that have, have occurred. But they are like repelled by it. So they won't stay with a company that doesn't support them and doesn't coach them and doesn't teach them and give them opportunities and make them feel valued. So then as the overlay, you had COVID. And so I wrote about this in my book because I'm absolutely convinced that this happened. So in March of 2020, when we were all deployed to our homes for the first time, we couldn't go back to our offices. People were working. Productivity didn't suffer at all. And companies were doing lots of stuff to care for people. And people were actually, you know, we, we proved we could make this thing work. It was really kind of remarkable. But what they also had was no commute. They had more time to themselves. And in that time, I believe that people all around the world started asking really essential questions. Am I working in the right job? Am I working for the right company? Am I working for the right boss? Is this where I want to spend the rest of my life? 
And they were probably asking those questions about their spouses and partners and, you know, how they were living their lives. But I fundamentally believe that the great resignation where 120 million people quit their jobs over the last 30 months was a direct response to that, where people have just basically said, I've had enough. I'm going to go, you know, and basically go anywhere, but not here. Like they were so unhappy. And so, you know, some economists go, well, it's not that, wasn't that big of a number. And it was pent out, pent up because some people didn't want to quit their jobs during the, the pandemic. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. I, I think it was soul searching that led people. You know how it is. You go to the doctor and the doctor goes, Hey, you know, we have cancer. You have cancer. We're going to get it out. Probably going to take six months of chemotherapy. You get through the six months of chemotherapy. You're not the same person anymore. You're like, you're very much aware of your mortality and you're going to make different decisions about how you live because you almost had your life taken away from you. That's what I think happened during that two year period where every, everybody all around the world had the same epiphany, which is life is too short to work for a bad company or a bad boss or, or a place where I'm just not getting my needs met. So why now? Because you're not going to be able to keep people or attract people if you don't create a culture like that. Gosh, we are. How did I? I mean, th this is singing to me because this is exactly what we talk about on kind of why purpose and value started to matter a lot more. You know, it's, they're they're very interconnected, as you know, which I'll, I'm going to ask some questions around it. But absolutely amazing. Like, I agree. The crash or the downturn of 2007, you know, when when. People like maybe a little bit younger than me, uh, so I'm a little bit old, but people that watch their baby boomer parents, like basically work their ass off and be miserable their whole life. They lost, you know, half of everything they had. And right. that was, you know, th then you, you add on the other stuff that you talked about. I mean, it just, I mean, what a, it, it's absolutely correct. I totally subscribe to that just based on kind of what we've done and, and having to get people a little bit more on board with being a little bit more, um, uh, you, you know, around developing employees and just, you know, kind of eccentric around, um, you know, kind of a people first, employee first kind of mentality and what the benefits are. So it's amazing. What advice, like now that we're kind of intertwining the two, what advice would you give leaders that are aiming to hire kind of heart led people into their companies? At a management level, you mean? Yeah, let's, yeah, we, we work at the leadership level. I think that's probably the best place to start. First of all, um, like I have some pretty strident views, and one of them is that if if you're serious about this, if you're serious about creating a culture that people really want to be a part of, that if you can't be proven, let me restate that, you're interviewing somebody for a management role, and if they can't prove to you that they care genuinely about other people, specifically their well-being, their growth, their development, their their achievement as a person in their career, then you must not hire them. Because we make this mistake and we think that some people, well, they were, you know, they were a great architect. They were the number one salesperson or, you know, they're the best uh, engineer. And we think, well, you know, we make them a manager and they're going to make everybody the best architect, salesperson, engineer. And in fact, they don't have any of the skills and motivations to be a good manager. And people then end up suffering. 
But I think one of the cornerstones is, is that not everybody likes the messiness of people. So I ask a question. So I'll do it with you. I'll say, okay, Max, you're, you're my management candidate. I go, Hey, have you, like in your career, have you ever helped somebody become more? Like they started working for you at one level and you helped them get to the next level? Your answer, of course, in a job interview is yes. Yes, I have, sir. I've done it. Yes, I have. And I go, great. Very good. Can you tell me their names? Tell me their names and, and specifically, with when you tell me their names, tell me what their job was when you got them, and then tell me where they are now, and then tell me specifically what you did to help them. Uh, well, um, you know, well, you know, the first one, Tom, I helped him out a lot. You know, I mean, Tom's doing great now, and yeah, but what did you do specific? Well, you know, I mean, Tom and I go way back. I mean, blah 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 blah. There's no detail because it didn't happen. If Tom got promoted because, you know, I'm mixing names here, but if, you know, an employee got promoted in this story, it was because of their own, you know, work ethic and their own, their own success, not anything that the manager did. I'm looking for somebody who can say, I saw the potential in this guy. And so the first thing I did was I sent them to a class and then I gave them a mentor. I want the details. So this is so essential. But it, it's also essential in terms of changing the culture because the people that are in the role today aren't necessarily effective in doing this yet, simply because they haven't been asked to. doesn't mean that they can't. It just means that they haven't been managed that way. So if you bring somebody in who you already know has a proven track record of doing this, the whole company is looking to see, who do we just hire for the most the new manager? Max. What's Max do? Well, Max is really great at developing people. He's really great at making people feel safe and valued and appreciated. He coaches people. And all of a sudden, you, by virtue of you being here, are telegraphing to the rest of the company that this is what management is looking for. So then management comes in and says, we need you to do this. This is, this is what our expectations are. And we're going to teach you how to do it. But now they're already seeing that the company is moving in that direction because they've hired somebody who already does it well. So you can not only be a model for everyone, but you can sort of offer some advice and so forth. But even that's put some burden on you that's not necessary. The whole idea is, is that every time somebody leaves, my motto is you can always strengthen your team and you necessarily should. So I, I think that's kind of how I would go about it. I mean, you need to teach and train. You need to give people education. And I believe, by the way, that ironically, um, coaching is far more effective than training and development. So you can send people through training and development, but what you really ought to be doing is finding people who are already good at this and having them coach and manage other people so that they become good at it. Gosh, uh, man, I love this. I want to unpack this a little bit uh, because I've toyed around with, you know, I think most people are familiar with uh, Robert Waldinger's uh, study in The Good Life, the book that he just wrote, which in uh, what the reason why I'm bringing that up is so I watched that years ago, you know, whenever it first came out and it's been probably 10, 15, 10, 15 years probably. And so what I toyed around with is I started in interviews with leaders I started to ask him, you know, he talks about how relationships and interactions are really at the end of the day, those two things are very important. So I started asking, these are leaders, these are like C-level folks, to tell me the most important 
uh, or the best uh, relationships that you've had, the three most, actually I asked for five, but five actually was too many, which surprised me. Five most uh, important and best relationships you have personally and professionally. And they kind of drawn back because nobody asked them those questions. So then to your point, they would have to say their name. So then once you have your name, then you'd say, all right, they, you know, they'd, they'd say Mark Crawley. All right. Tell me what, tell me why your relationship with Mark was so great. So then they have to tell you specifics about that relationship. And uh, it was, it's very hard what I have found. And I, and I probably did this probably 30 people. And what I found is five was really hard. And then when people started talking about personal, which you think it'd be really easy to t- talk about personal relationships, that got really hard for people. And then I would ask, tell me what a good interaction with that, you know, with this person, whether it be the professional person, but I, you'd start calling them by name because you would write the names down. And uh, it was incredible, uh, you know, how quickly you could uncover somebody that had good relationships and somebody that really didn't. They wouldn't necessarily tell you they didn't, but you could just tell that they weren't clear. There's no depth, right? It's all very superficial. Well, it's interesting, a couple of things. One is that um, new, new data shows that 40% of Americans don't have a best friend. And so, I don't know, I, my wife has more best friends than, like, I know people. So, I, it's men that have the problem. It's not women. Um, so, if you're in a room full of men and you're asking, tell us about your five best friends, they can't even do that. Moreover, give you five best friends at work. So, that's a problem. But back to, interestingly, Robert Waldinger was on my podcast last month. Oh, awesome. And uh, absolutely fascinating guy, obviously. But what he's talking about is, and this, you know, this is a study that goes back to 1938. So he didn't found it. He's been managing it for like the last 17 years. And I think he's the fifth guy to do it. He's the right guy to do it. He's a, he's, he's, a genius. He's, a, he's just, he's the right guy. He's a medical doctor. He's a psychiatrist. He's a Zen Buddhist. He's got all these dimensions that make this kind of research really great. But the, what, what they have proved over and over is that what people need in order to thrive and actually live, I'm not talking about being happy every day. I'm talking about in order to, your body is telling you, we're going to give you another day out in the universe. We're going to give you another day to live, right? So the people who live the longest repeatedly, since 1938, they've been studying these same people and their families, and they've proved that the people who have love in their lives, relationships with not just a spouse or a partner, but with friends, and and who also have constant interactions with other people, because we they've proved that in his study and other studies have proved that it's the micro connections that we thrive on. It's the five second conversation you have with the dry cleaner every time you see him once a week or the guy that makes your sandwich or right that these kinds of the people at the grocery store, the when you run into somebody on the street and you stop and you have a conversation. They they're what's so fascinating to me is and like and I've known this forever, like long before I ever saw the study, I knew this. It's about connection. We connect in our heart. People don't connect here. We connect here. And so what he's saying, what the study has repeatedly shown is that, and I can't remember the guy who did the study before him, 
But they asked him, famous guy, I'm sorry, I can't come up with his name, but they said, what's the bottom line conclusion of your study? And he goes, love, full stop. So go back 20 minutes into our conversation about what love is. It's not just romantic love. It's this experience of positive emotions that makes us feel better inside. That's what we get from connection. That's what we get. It's it stabilizes us. It makes us feel something really positive. And that sustains us through our days, which is how people live longer. So it's about the heart. And this is why, by the way, I've written several articles and, and I had people really upset with me when I wrote the first one saying we should not be working from home full time. I'm a big fan of it. I work from home myself. You know, I, I walk like 30 feet and I'll say to my wife, I go, well, I got to go, you know, commute to work now. <laughs> you know, I'm walking for like 30 seconds to my studio. And so, but if I were just here and I wasn't traveling and speaking and doing stuff with companies and stuff and being with other people, I'd be miserable. And so we need that. We need that connection. That's what the study has proven since 1938 is that that's what our well-being is, is driven by. So we can't ignore that. It's all about connection. Oh, man. Uh, 100%. I think me personally, when you're bringing, talking about March 2020, getting stuck behind a computer was super hard for me. Like I, I say very humbly, uh, you know, I'm a lot cooler in person than I am over Zoom just because I feel just better when I'm face to face with somebody. Put me in a happy hour situation talking to somebody. And like, I feel super connected and just can articulate myself really, really well, uh, and just feel a lot better. So I, I hundred percent, you know, agree. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's been tough, but mixing in the right amount, you're right of interaction and seeing the right amount of clients is, uh, super critical. What's interesting in our work is a lot of our clients, they're so distributed now, even when we want to go see them, they're like, well, it's easier if we just do it over zoom. Because yeah, I understand that. So that limits you. That doesn't give you what you need. But what I'm, interestingly enough, you're going to have to go find that through friendships and, you know, your children, your, 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 your life out, you know, wherever you can get that. And if there are companies where you can go to them and get on a plane or a train or a boat and get, go see them and, and you know, get that for yourself. But if those people don't get together, and they just say, you know, it's too much trouble for us to get together. So we'll get together once, once a year and we'll just, you know, get together every week by Zoom and whatever we need to have meetings. I, I, I mean, this Walden year is pretty clear. Like the science is pretty clear that you can't make that up. Yeah. You know, people say to me, and this is what I got in the criticisms, like, I got friends. I got family. I don't need my coworkers. And I'm like, you don't know you need your coworkers, but you need your coworkers. You need the connection, whether it's somebody you like or not, you know, like somebody you would have over for dinner. That's not the point. The point is you're having interactions with people and you're talking and you're, you're opening yourselves up to other people and you're doing it for them and they're doing it for you. That's the exchange. So these companies that are running remotely, I, I think it's a disaster. I mean, I truly think it's a disaster. Not because I don't think in the short term that they can run their company that way, but because there's just not enough time in the day for people to make up the loss, the loss of interaction, right? So they, well, five o'clock, I'm going to go to a bar and meet people. Okay. So you stay till eight o'clock, nine o'clock. That's four hours, but you were working for 10. So there's 
Nothing you can do. Go and play softball. You can only do it for a couple hours. Whatever it is that you can come up with that gives you the social interaction. People go, well, you know, I don't need it all the time. But we do. That's the thing. We do. And you feel it. You know, like when they go, hey, we can just do it over Zoom, Max. You're like, eh, that's not what I want. You know, I want to be with you. Right. Oh, yeah. Lucky enough, I I have enough like peer groups and you know friends that I could kind of somewhat overcome. But you're right. I I think it's a deficit that you know you don't overcome. And I think this is kind of leading us down the question that I'd love to get your insights on. And I read uh, I think it was one of your tweets from earlier today, and it was about um, the work from home statistics globally. And I think you know I think we're at a lot higher percentage than the rest of the world. So. I guess what I assume from that is that it's trending back the other way is what I can assume for that. So if you could talk about that, I, I, you know, I think everything we're leading to here is kind of leading down this conversation a little bit, but do you think we'll continue to trend back to a more normalized work from the office percentage as time moves on? I'm, you know, where, where, if I could kind of put a frame around where I think we are, I kind of go off of the major organizations like Apple and Google and Amazon. Now, now they're tech firms, but let's face it, they're they're not just tech firms, right? <laughs> they're product retailers, all that kind of stuff. And they're all working in the office three days a week. So they're already back 60% of the time. I, I, um, and you can find this online, but Mayor Bloomberg, who is a genius, who is the mayor of, mayor of New York City, three terms, Obviously, a billionaire from creating the Bloomberg terminals uh, in in brokerage business. Um, he just he lays it out yesterday. He goes, "It's just simply irrefutable that there are things you cannot do when you're not together, and more importantly, the things that you do when you are together are always better than what they're going to be when you're not together. So you need to be together." That's really his argument. And I'm like, I can't argue with you, guy. I can't seriously argue with. You know, I mean, I know I do a lot of work like this. We're doing this. I know I can make it work. I know it. I know how to do this. Um, but it, the thing is, is that when you have teams and people that are relying on each other, those relationships start to, to wear down because you're not seeing them. You're not connecting with them. You're not having little personal conversations in the hall. It's like, did he really mean that? Like, you know, did you, did you know what I heard? Like those kinds of things where you get the automatic course correction. Instead, the meeting's over and you're sitting there by yourself and you're like, my boss mad at me? You know, now I got to track somebody down. It's like, you miss all that. That's just sort of like a simple kind of a thing that is real. And so, and I'm working with a company that basically where there's two, two CEOs. It's a, it's, they've got enough divisions now where one guy runs one part of the business and the other one runs the other. But they have made the decision and they use this language. They say, we're an in-person business. We believe it's so important. We want you here. So if the washing machine breaks down and somebody has to come to the house, they have no problem. None. They never question people if they're working from home. They, what they're saying is, we'll give you that flexibility. You have a kid sick to home, stay with them. You know, if you, if you have uh, a little late game at three o'clock in the afternoon, you don't want to have to drive into the office. No problem. So they're giving people sort of like implied. You can take it every once in a while, but we want you in the office most of the time. And I think that's where CEOs are most of the time. So if, if I think 
It's not going to go away. It's too beneficial to people. It really is. And not having a commute is life-changing for people. But I think for right now, the three-day or four-day in the office, one or two days at home is kind of where it's going to go. Got it. That's, uh, I, I couldn't argue any of the points you've made. And, you know, this is a very valuable conversation for everybody that's, you know, listening, because I think everybody's kind of grappling with, you know, what do we do, whether they're remote now or hybrid or whatever direction they're taking it. But I think that's uh, super helpful. Question I wanted to ask you is, uh, and it may be, this just might be semantics, but I, I don't know a better person to ask this question. So obviously we, you know, being a purpose-based leadership search firm, we, you know, we'll use the term purpose-driven or purpose-aligned, things like that. How do you, how would you describe the differences and the similarities between people that are, you know, like heart, like heart-led leaders and people that are purpose-driven? So I was talking to this guy. I won't tell you where the city is, where this is, but the same business that I was talking to you about where they are saying we want people in the office every day. So um, where in, in the city that they have, there's a mall, shopping mall, and it's dying. But it was sort of like the center of the universe. Uh, and I'll, I'll hint, I'll give you, it's a state capital. So it's one of the 50 states, the capital, and smaller states. And so this mall is sort of really central, but it's dying, like a lot of malls are. And it's creating sort of a blight in the in the city. Like people can see it. They're driving by and stores are going out of business and you know, there's one that's boarded up and then another one has somebody and another one boarded up. And it's just it's a daily reminder that you're not successful and it doesn't feel right for people. So these two owners decided we're going to buy it. So they bought the building and the bought, bought the whole shopping center. So obviously this company is doing well. And what they're going to do is they're going to make it their headquarters, but they're also going to manage it so that half of it is their headquarters and the other half of it is what is sustainable now in terms of businesses. So they'll spend the next four or five years, you know, bringing it up to, to, you know, making it more modern and, and making it sort of this combination of a workplace and a retail shopping center. The person that I was talking to is an executive of the company and he goes, we're all so proud of this. He goes, because everyone here knows we're doing that. Everyone knows that our company is stepping up. They didn't have to buy that building. We have a building where we're in. We're going to have to figure out what we're doing. But it served the purpose of this company feeling really grateful to their community for supporting them and with employees, you know, they keep growing and they're sourcing people right there and, and they want to do something really great in the community. And I could just feel like this guy that I was talking to, he doesn't want to go anywhere. He's like, this is a company that cares. This is a company that doesn't just see the bottom line. And these guys are making a lot of money, these two owners. And they could just go and buy themselves jets and buy themselves homes in exotic places. So, and, and the time that's involved in developing a shopping center that's dying, just imagine that. Like, this is going to be an occupation for them for a long time. And then who's going to manage the store owners and all the leases? And it's like a mess. But they did it because they live there. And they want something better for their community. And so all these employees get to see this and they're like, we did that. We're part of that. 
that's a purpose. That is a purpose. And like, it moves me. Like, when I heard him, I was like, I get it. I get what you're feeling because they didn't have to do it. And this is where I think, you know, what a lot of CEOs think is like, yeah, we'll have a purpose, but our purpose really between you and me is we need to make as much money. We got our goals, and, right? And they miss the whole point of this. And it, you know, just to kind of conclude here, it goes down to the feelings that people are having because feelings and emotions drive human behavior. So if all you are is about the money, there's enough of that that people come in and go, you know, this, there's nothing, all these people want to do is make money. They want to sell more widgets. And I'm like, I want to be a part of something that's bigger than that. I want my life to be something that is much greater than just making money. Um, there's uh, Arthur Brooks, who is a professor at um, Harvard and just wrote a book about designing the life you want with Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. Um, he's making this emphatically clear that it isn't about cars and it's not about boats and it's not about how much money you make. Happiness has nothing to do with those kinds of things. And so we're not talking about the happiness that you get when you're eating an ice cream cone. We're getting eudaimonic happiness that Aristotle talked about, which is deep down, am I a happy person? Do I feel really good about what I'm doing? And if you don't have purpose in your organization, you're not going to succeed because people are going to be repelled by it. They just can't get up every morning to make you more money. It's just, it's just, it doesn't motivate anybody any longer. It's like, bam, it's gone. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Well, let me ask you, do you feel like you found your purpose in your work? What do you think? I mean, 100%, but I like, just want to... I, mean, I think I was hurt on this earth to do this work, to be honest with you. I mean, you, you look at... Um, so I wrote about a woman who... So my father is abusing me, and and he gets remarried. And this woman that he married, I mean, they were like two peas in a pot. She couldn't care less about me. And so she made this statement that, look... Your dad doesn't get home until seven o'clock. I'm going, I'm in New York. This is in December. And she says, and I'm 10 years old. My mom has died a year earlier. And she says, you find a way, you know, you stay out of the house until your father comes home at seven o'clock for dinner. I'm like, where the hell am I going to go as a 10 year old kid and not be freezing? You can't be playing outside from three o'clock to seven o'clock. And so I only had one place to go, which is next door. And I wrote about this. My best, my best friends were next, literally next door, Paul and Candy. Well, what ended up happening was Mrs. Whitman, their mother, she, she told me that she had probably 70% optics into it. So she didn't know how bad it was, but she knew what was going on at home wasn't right. So she basically said, I want you to come. She had five kids on her own. And she says, I want you to come here every day. So I did for the next four years. Um, and she's still alive today. She's 95 years old. And I talk to her every couple of weeks. All these years later, she's still in my life. She's back in Connecticut, 3,000 miles away. And what she has said to me was, like, you wouldn't have been this person had you not had those experiences. And so that means that you had to have those experiences in order to be the person you are. 
And when she said it, I realized, like, this wasn't recent. She said this 12 years ago when I was writing the book the first time. And she's basically saying is, don't you kind of think you were put here for that? Like, do you think all of those experiences that you had, all leading all the way up to meeting the cardiologist and having her confirm what you learned about leading with love and leading from the heart, that, that is this an accident? Like, you just lucky guy that this happened to? And so, you know, for 12 years, when people say, well, that's bullshit or that, that doesn't make any sense or nobody leads with heart, you know, I, I was I was strengthened by, no, man, you can't talk me out of this. I know this. Not only do I know this is truth, but I know it's inevitable. What I will tell you, though, is interesting. And this is a point to your CEO audience. I thought they would be noble. I thought they would understand the science that I'm talking about and go, wow, well, he's given us a roadmap. He's basically telling us where we need to go. We need to change our cultures. We need to change how we're leading because science is telling us to do that. And they didn't. And the reason they didn't was because A, heart sounds soft. And B, they were like, well, I'm afraid of asking people who work for me to manage that way because I got to the top by not being that guy. So they're saying, why should I have to change? And then once you get into why am I going to change, why would I ask other people to change? So they just blow off the whole thing. So I was very, very disappointed by that. But you want to know what is changing it? Bottom up. That's not what I thought was going to happen. I thought the change would come from the smart CEOs who saw the future, understood what I was talking about, and then took the leadership role and changed their cultures. And instead... It's the 120 million people that quit over the last 30 months that is forcing them to do it. It's not out of nobility. It's not out of a, a, like an epiphany where they're like, we got to do this because we can't afford to keep losing people kind of a thing. And that's not the shift that we need. We need them. That's fine. That's how, that's how they get on the path. But once they get on the path, they have to buy into it. You can't fake this. You can't go, be nice to people. That's not what I'm talking about. This is this is like all-inclusive. It's not being nice to people or, tell, I love you, Bill. That's not what I'm talking about. It's demonstrating to people that they matter, that they're part of something that's bigger, that they're appreciated, that they have an opportunity to grow and contribute, and people tell them that, you know, what you do here is significant. Those kinds of things have to be rotation. They have to be normal, normalized. And so some people won't get it. Some people are just going to fight this tooth and nail. Um, and, you know, that's just the way it's going to go. But the people who are on board with this, they're, I mean, my experience is not anecdotal. I've seen this over and over where people have led like this and the results they get are extraordinary because feelings drive behavior. I mean, people feel safe and supported and valued. They just want to reciprocate and just do great work over and over and over. So. You know, some people will be slow to pick it up. Some people will be immediate to pick it up, but not picking it up would be a profound mistake. Gosh, this has been, by the way, uh, and I'm not one of these uh, uh, podcast guys that says this is the most amazing conversation in every single one of my podcasts, but I know I said that last week. This has gone, honestly, not in the, the direction I necessarily thought it would go. I mean, I, I knew it would be good, but for our audience and for what this show is all about and what you know we've talked about and this is so right on 
There's something that I want to, I want to start like kind of winding stuff down and just cause I want to be respectful of your time. And thank you so much for the time that you've spent. I mean, you gave me an hour the first time I talked to you and we kind of ran out of time. I think I made you late for something when we had our first call. So you've been super generous and it's been amazing. But there was something you told me that I wanted to kind of unpack a little bit. And I think I understood it, but I want my audience to hear it. Is you talked about why you don't like the term servant leadership. Can you share that? Because I, I think people use that generically because, you know, in they use it with good intent, but I want to like get your perspective on, you know, wait, maybe why servant leadership is the best description for, you know, certain types of leaders. Well, I, I, there's, there's two reasons and they're, they're really not united. But the first one is, is that the idea of being a servant, literally to someone, I mean, when we think of servants, what do we think of? We think of somebody who's cleaning for us, cooking for us, care, caring after us. You know, we, we, we wave the bell and they come. There's, there's a, there's a lot of that packed into, to use your language, the, this idea of a servant. When you, you know, if, if you really want to get a little bit deeper into it, um, there's a racial aspect of that too. You know, our history, unfortunately, our servants weren't necessarily all white. And so you give somebody this idea of being a servant and it has, it just, it's a mess. And, yeah. and, but the other reason is because servant leadership says all you're supposed to be doing is really focusing on your people. And what I'm here to tell you is, is that that doesn't pay the bills. So you can't be taking care of the people and expecting that alone is going to take care of getting the business done. You still have to do the strategies. You, you still have to meet the goals and you still have to get in the car and go meet the sales clients and you have to do the work kind of a thing. So what I'm saying is, is that it can't be just serving employees. Leadership can't, it has to be about serving the organization. Whether it's an owner or a corporation, you, you still have a responsibility to them to do what it is that you're supposed to be doing. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. 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 No, absolutely. So, yeah. so it, for me, it kills both. You know, I, I, the language of servant, I've never really liked, but then on top of it, 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 it it's not true north. It sends people in a direction that sort of implies that. Your job is just to take care of your people, but you have a responsibility to the organization to meet the goals and to do what the company needs you to do. So you've got to blend that. That's not to say that you water down how much you care about people or support people. It says you, you do everything to support people in order to enable them to perform and to meet the company's goals. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's almost like uh, the way it's somewhat sum a little bit of that up in the way i'm interpreting uh servant is like one way like you know what i mean it's it there's it's not just one direction and it's not just one you know just the employees it's you know it's an ecosystem that really has to thrive so i think you're absolutely right from a description standpoint um well let's let's jump into this has been like i said absolutely amazing and um i i i mean i i honestly i took some notes and i read through a lot of your stuff and did the research that i normally do because i i liked it and enjoyed it and I honestly didn't get to like 25% of like questions that I oh, like, yeah. wow. But, but it's, but like, that's what I know was good. And when I think back and I look at all this stuff, we naturally kind of covered it all. So I'm like, this might be, you know, 
like I said, I wouldn't say this unless it was true, but the topics we covered and the ground you covered today and the way you covered it uh, was absolutely amazing. Um, I do want to share with the audience in, in case they, they, they just how they'd get a hold of you. Uh, I know that you have Lead from the Heart as your book. I know that you wrote it 12 years ago. You just, you know, came out with a, a new edition, what, a year or two ago. Uh, so, you know, if, if you obviously you're into this conversation like I am, I'm going to go get the book and read it. I had not read the whole book yet. Uh, so this is a one like incredible. But how is there? I think you have online courses. How can the audience engage with you? And where do they find you? Where's the best place? Um, probably the best place is markccrowley.com. Don't forget the C. So it's Mark Christopher Crowley. So markccrowley.com. Um, and it has, it has access to the book, which you can find on Amazon, obviously, but every one of my podcasts were in the top one and a half percent in the world. I haven't announced this yet, but Chevron just sponsored it. So I just signed the contract with them today. It's like a big day for me. Yeah. It's a big day, not just because it's, it's because 12 years of trying to prove that this works to have an organization that's in the top 10 companies in the Fortune 500 say we want to be a part of this pretty much tells me what I need to know. Like you're on the right path. So markccrowley.com, the course there we just created, or actually we're starting the next um, cohort at the end of the month. I'm not sure when this is going to run, but uh, but everything is there. markccrowley.com if you want to learn more about me. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Is there any, any last, I mean, we, we go on forever, but I have, this has been super enjoyable for me. Is there any last, anything last that you would love to share with the audience? I say two things at the end of my podcast. Um, one that a friend of mine created. So when we were putting the book out, my publisher came up with some really like, it wasn't very effective for the book cover. So my friend just wrote it and sent it to me. And he said, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And it's absolutely true. So I've never stopped using it. And then the other is based on what we talked about with Barbara Fredrickson. The last thing I say on every single show is love your people. And it's not go give them a hug. You're in a relationship like that. You can do it. That's fine. It's not going up saying, hey, Max, I love you. I love you. love you. It's demonstrating to them. That's what I'm talking about. Demonstrate it to them. Make sure that they feel something by working for you. And people will do extraordinary things for you. So those are the two things I'll leave you with. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. That was absolutely amazing. All right, Max. Best to you. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. You can hear any of our previous shows 24-7 wherever you get your podcasts. 